He wouldn't shake my hand earlier because he's not feeling well. So. There you go. If you would please turn with me to Psalm 16. We will be reading both Psalm 16 and 17 for our New Testament reading. Psalm 16, let us hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Psalm 16, Miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee. But to the saints that are, on earth, uh, that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after other gods. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou hast maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy, thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And now Psalm 17, a prayer of David. Hear the right, O Lord, attend unto my cry. Give ear unto my prayer that goeth, out not, uh, goeth not out of feigned lips. Let my sentence come forth from thy presence. Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. Thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visit, visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shall find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips, I have kept me, uh, I have kept me from the path of the destroyer. Hold up my goings in thy paths, that my footsteps slip not. I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me, O God. Incline thine ear unto me, and hear my speech. Show thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. From the wicked that oppress me, from mine enemies, who compass me about. They are enclosed in their own fat. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now compassed us in our steps. They have set their eyes bowing down to the earth, like as a lion that is greedy of his prey, and as it were a young lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord, disappoint him. Cast him down. Deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword from men which are thy hand. 
O Lord, from men of the world, which have their portion in this life, and whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure. They are full of children, and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake with thy, right, with thy likeness. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Okay, so beginning in Psalm 16, we have a psalm written by David. It is, uh, there's no real historical occasion that is indicated by the psalm. Um, David, in this psalm, seeks to commend himself to the care and protection of God, not for anything in himself, but because of the grace, mercy, and benefits he receives from God in Christ. We have this term in the title, called it's called a miktam, a miktam. And miktam uh, simply means a, a golden or a golden psalm. And so the idea here is that this is a psalm of great excellency, of great weight, of great glory, right? It is one of great worth. And surely we can say this about this psalm, Psalm 16, seeing as it reveals to us the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ as that foundational, um, uh, that foundational doctrine upon which we rest our hope of our resurrection. Okay, so... As far as the exposition is concerned, we start out with David asking the Lord to preserve him. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. The idea of preserve here is the idea of keeping, guarding, protecting. Uh, It is the idea of not necessarily delivering him from any particular circumstance, but that constant need that we have for our Lord to keep us in the way, keep us away from sin and temptation, keep us on the path of life throughout the entirety of our lives and even into everlasting. And why? Because in thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. So while there is not a particular affliction in this psalm that uh, prompts David's Uh, request to be preserved by God, it does give us something of an indication of what the whole tenor of David's life was and what the whole tenor of our life ought to be. David appeals to God in whom he exclusively puts all his trust, preserve him throughout the whole course of his life. He prays that God would keep him in that way of life. So then David turns uh, immediately to speak to his own soul. Right Now you notice that, uh, oh my soul is in italics, but I believe that it is rightly added there. It, it is David saying to himself, reminding himself uh, of this truth that he's, about to, uh, that he's about to go into. Now what we see here first off is that David devotes himself to the honor and service of the Lord, that is Jehovah, as his Adonai, as his Lord. Right? This is the confession of everyone who puts their trust in him. We may not simply call God our covenant-keeping God and the author of our salvation without also calling him our Lord. <clears throat> and then the confidence that David has in the Lord does not come from anything that he has to offer. What, he's, what David is doing here is he's saying that everything 
that I have that ties my relationship into the, with the Lord is one-sided. It comes down, not up. I have in myself nothing to offer God, nothing to benefit Him by. And so He is... He is contemplating the divine nature, that God is eternal, independent, sovereign, all-sufficient. And if we think about God in this way, we must humbly confess that there is nothing that we can do in this world, nothing that we have, nothing that we are, that we can offer unto God to gain any purchase with Him. He is eternally complacent in Himself. All that we are, all that we have, and any good in us, we, must, uh, we cannot think to offer him because we receive it from him. However, though all of our services and our persons add nothing to God, yet that in no way dissuades David from serving the Lord, does it? It does not dissuade him from serving the Lord. Like David... We also must not be dissuaded from serving the Lord. We must be resolved to serve the Lord as our Lord. Take courage that though there is nothing that we ourselves have to offer the Lord, He accepts our persons and our services in the Beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that in itself is a grace. We do great honor to our God when we approach Him in humility, recognizing that we are unprofitable servants, and at best we have but done what is our duty. Okay, so moving on to uh, verse 3. Now David then concerns himself uh, with what is his duty. Having resolved his soul to the service of the Lord, David here expresses how that service is manifested. If God is our Lord, we must, for his sake, extend our goodness to those who are his saints. Our service does not profit God. And so we manifest our love to God by, by uh, our, our, our loving service toward those who are created after Christ Jesus. Delighting in his saints. No sacrifice is more acceptable to God than for us to love and delight in his saints. Thus, it is in many places described as a sure manifestation of our love to God that we love the brethren. And it is a blessed promise that our Lord Jesus Christ gives in Matthew 10 when he teaches us that God will not forget the mercies that we bestow upon his beloved children, but instead accounts what is done to them as done to himself. So moving on to verse 4, David then turns to consider the opposite side of that coin, right? If our delight is in the saints, then what of those who hasten after other gods? What of those who uh, pervert the worship or make idols unto themselves? Well, in this verse, David disclaims all false and idol worship and all communion with those who hasten after them. We, like David, must be resolved to have no communion or close fellowship with the wicked and idolatrous men, nor participate in their works of darkness. For all the services and all the energy that wicked men put into their religious practices, hastening after other gods, 
their sorrows are multiplied because they not only lose their substance in this life, offering their substance up to those who are no gods, but then they call down the miseries and wrath of God upon them. And so David here speaks to them of their sorrows being multiplied. So now, based on, upon the promise of God delivered unto Abraham in Genesis 15, David then declares that the Lord is the portion of his inheritance and his cup. Notice the exclusivity of David's confession here. He says that the Lord and the Lord alone is his inheritance. Where those lines fall, it extends no further, neither would I want it to. In having God as my inheritance, the line or borders of it are all in pleasant places. There is no portion of it as I am commanded as Abraham to walk up and down my inheritance. When I walk up and down my inheritance of the Lord, I find nothing but pleasant places. I find nothing but exceeding joy. All that we have in the Lord is pleasant refreshing, joyous, and plenty. Nothing is lacking in it. Do you need protection? God is our shield. Do we need refreshment? God is the fountain of every good. Do we need comfort? God is the greatest of comforters. What need have we of more? One passage I pulled out to put in my notes of Matthew Henry. From Matthew Henry says, Gracious persons, though they still covet more of God, never covet more than God. Notice, beloved, that having the Lord as our inheritance, it lacks nothing. It is a goodly heritage. And once we have the Lord as our portion and our inheritance, we have no need to fear. The Lord is the one who maintains our lot. He has promised himself to those who put their faith and trust in him, and none can separate us from the love of God in Christ, as we read in Romans 8. All right, so um, David then in verse 7 turns to bless the Lord and thank him for the grace that he has uh, bestowed upon him. There is a recognition here that all that he has from the Lord is by his grace. He has counseled him, right? And what we're talking about here is not only counseled in his word, but also counseled by his spirit. That irresistible call that brings one into the possession of, of all of God's gracious benefits, and then that continued, um, that continued manifestation of our grace that keeps us in the way. And so by God working in him, both by his word and spirit, then he turns and says, my reins, my deepest parts, instruct me in the night. How did that happen? Because David is conversant with the word. <coughs> all right, so... Uh, then as we move to 16, 8 through uh, 11, I got to hustle here a little bit. Um, he says that the Lord is always before me because he is at my right hand. So this last section here, we see in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13 by both Peter and Paul that these verses here are taken from this psalm as applicable to Christ. Now, some commentators um, have believed that this psalm exclusively applies to Christ. I don't think that's the case at all. I don't think we need to limit the psalm in that way. And so while it is perfectly applicable to Christ, 
there is no need to confine its application to him exclusively. There is a sense in which it is applicable to David and all those who put their trust in him. And I'll show you how. As I have set the Lord always before me because he has my right hand, having the Lord as our portion, we set him before us as that, that aim, that, that goal, that animating principle that governs the entirety of our lives. He is the delight of our heart. He is set before us and we walk in that way, right? And what maintains us there? The Lord is at my right hand. He is keeping me in that path. And so then he goes and says, um, therefore my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh also shall rest in hope. Notice that David's confidence is not bound up in his own faithfulness or constancy, but instead upon the strength of the Lord to sustain him. And having this strength then, having this confidence, his heart is made glad, his glory or his soul rejoiceth, and his flesh shall rest though having suffered death in the hope of the resurrection. <clears throat> and so David's confidence is, thou shalt not leave my soul in hell. That is, I will not continue to abide in the grave because, or as neither thy holy one shall see corruption. So this is the same application that we have in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul will say that if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not resurrected. Then our hope is lost. And we are but above all men most miserable. Right? Our hope of the resurrection is tied in to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in that, it is applicable in Acts 2 and 13. All right, Psalm 17. I'll rush through this. Again, we have a Psalm of David. Um, many commentators on this psalm, as far as a historical occasion, have posited many different options. Um, most tend to agree that this psalm was written sometime during David's um, exile under the persecution of Saul. However, to pinpoint an exact time, it would be very difficult. Um, it is called a prayer of David. Now, don't let this... Um, mess you up while it is a prayer it is said to be a prayer it is also in, enclosed in the book of psalms and so oftentimes as we see in several other psalms 86 90 102 and so forth prayers are often also put for praises and so in these in these prayers we may both use them as praises as psalms to sing unto the lord and to help us in our own prayers. <clears throat> okay, so um, the characteristic feature of the psalm is that it is in the form of a petition unto the Lord. So in Proverb, uh, I'm sorry, in Psalm 17, 1 through 5, David begins by appealing to the just judgment of God. He says, uh, Hear the right, O Lord, or, or my righteous cause. Attend unto my cry, give ear unto my prayer that goeth not out of feigned lips. Now it would be improper to say of David here, um, improper to read his statements as if he is pressing to the Lord some sort of perfect righteousness or some sinlessness uh, in the case that he is presenting to the Lord. That is not what he is doing here. 
Instead, he is appealing to God as the covenant-keeping Lord. Hear the right, O Lord, all caps. Notice. Uh, Covenant-keeping Lord, he calls upon God to remember his promise and grace toward his servants. God's people stand before the Lord having the wrath and curse due to them placed upon Christ and Christ's perfect righteousness placed upon them. It is not therefore improper for the people of God standing before God in Christ's perfect righteousness to claim that righteousness as their own. David asked to be considered by our just and gracious God in Christ Jesus to adjudicate the case according to perfect equity. Okay, so David not only stands before the Lord in Christ, but we also see the great concern he had for the manifestation of the grace of God in his life and conduct. How else could David say that uh, my prayer goes forth not out of feigned lips? How could David know that the case he is presenting from the Lord does not come from deceit or does not come as a pretext for covering over his sin? Well, 3 through 5 provide us with that answer. David sets forward the practice of self-examination here so that the Lord would purify his heart and his tongue. So while he does not claim perfect righteousness, (coughs) we notice that David's practice here is to examine his heart, improve his obedience to the Lord's command, and confess his sin so that he stands before God in a clear conscience. Uh, with a clear conscience, as 1 Peter 3, 16 will tell us. Thus he can appeal to the Lord in full assurance that the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord has like a candle searched out the deepest recesses of his soul, that he has applied the word of God to those places, and that he, having examined himself and trusting in the Lord to reveal unto him any sins that might be lingering in his members, he says unto the Lord, hear me. Notice how he's, he presents his practice for examining himself. Thou hast proved mine heart as a refiner would purge metal of dross, so the Lord has purged my heart of dr- the dross of sin and wickedness. Thou hast visited me in the night when all the other cares and concerns of the world are set aside and I am in the silence of night. It is not silence in my soul, but I am communing with my soul, searching out the inmost parts taking the candle of the Lord to it. Thou hast tried me and shalt find nothing, since he has committed himself to the regular searching uh, of, of, the, uh, of the Lord and, and communion with him in his soul. He has confidence that he is innocent of the outward crimes he has been accused of and any inward malice towards his enemies. And such he can say, I can find, I, you will find nothing. Okay. <coughs> So in verse 4, I'm sorry, then he goes and says, I am purposed that my tongue shall not transgress. Having taken care of the spring inside, then he turns to the river, the stream that flows out of that spring. Right? He turns to his tongue and he says, not that I have never or that I will never sin with my mouth. That would have been presumption. But I have purposed never to sin with my tongue that it shall not transgress. 
And so we find good reason why God, David communes with his heart under the watchful gaze of the Lord. He sets his heart before the Lord to be purified because if the spring is pure, then the stream also might be pure. Then in verse 4, David will then turn to consider his activity, the actions and affairs of human life. Um, he will say that by ordering his activities according to the word of thy lips, the word of God, we may walk in integrity before the Lord. He says that by the word of thy lips I have kept me from the paths or ways of the destroyer. Who is the destroyer here? <coughs> I take it to mean Satan and all those that are under his dominion. All those that seek to embody that, that principle that drives Satan to destroy in really what we see in Saul seeking to destroy him, Satan does as well. Uh, the way of sin are the paths of Satan and those, uh, and they are those that lead to destruction. All those who walk in them are compassed about with misery and destruction. And so I have kept my ways from the prince of the power of the air. All right, so moving on to 6 through 15. Having presented to the case, uh, his case for innocence to the Lord on account of faith, David now turned, commits, uh, I'm sorry, forgive me. Having presented the case of his innocence, now he turns to present the case that is external to him. Verse 6, David has, uh, has called and continues to call upon the Lord in full confidence that the Lord will hear him and incline his ear unto the prayer of his beloved child. In verse 7, we see that David asked the Lord uh, that the Lord would marvelous, marvelously demonstrate his covenant fidelity by saving him from his present distress. And in verse 8, we see David speaking of God's great affection and tenderness uh, to those who trust him and ask that the Lord manifest the same in his present distress. He will use terms such as keep me as the apple or the pupil of your eye. As, Lord, as the Lord has taught us by nature to protect our eyes, that even if something should uh, feign to come toward our eyes, we immediately turn to protect, such is the case with um, how the Lord tenderly loves his saints. Or, as it says here, hide me under the shadow of thy wings as a hen who senses some present danger, perhaps a hawk flying overhead will gather her chicks under her wings to protect so we gather under the wings of our Lord. Notice how he'll turn then to identify those who cause his pre present distress. He calls them, um, they, they are wicked men who oppose or seek to destroy him. They are deadly enemies who compass him about. They are those who are enclosed in their own fat. That is that they have all that they need in this world and they live presumptuously in confidence in their worldly prosperity with their mouth they speak proudly the pride of their heart is manifested in the words of their mouth in that they think i shall never be moved there is no god that sees and so forth other phrases like that that we hear out of the psalter they have compassed us in our steps that is in any way that we go, everywhere that we seek to escape, it seems like they are compassing about. There does not seem to be a way of escape, Lord. And this is why, you know, we see him calling upon the Lord because there is no way of escape. All right. And then they have set their eyes to bow down to the earth like a lion. 
What is the bowing down? This is not bowing down in humility, but bowing down as a lion creeps in the grass ready to pounce upon its prey. Right? And so we see that these wicked men who David talks about here, they are of the same spirit as their father, the devil, who, like a roaring lion, walketh about seeking who he may devour. In verses 13 through 15 then, the Lord, uh, David calls upon the Lord to disappoint and cast down these wicked men who oppress him. Verses 13 and 14, David recognizes that all the affliction and oppression of his enemies is ordered and directed by the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. They are his sword that are in his hand. And just as quickly as the Lord may take out his sword, he can also sheathe his sword. Right? He can also destroy his sword, right? There is no affliction or persecution that we suffer in this world that God has not ordered for his glory and our good. And while the wrath of man may glory, glorify God, the remainder he shall restrain, right? And so we can have confidence that although God may use wicked men to chastise and humble us, for a season, they are bridled by the Lord who loves and cares for us. But they can only go as far as the Lord allows. And he will visit them in his wrath when his sovereign purposes are accomplished as he did with Assyria. In Isaiah 10. So then in verses 14 and 15, David then turns the end of the wicked as compared uh, with, uh, with the end which he expects for those who put their trust in the Lord. What's interesting here is that they have their portion in this life and whose belly uh, thou fillest with thy hid treasure. They are full of children and they leave the rest of their substance to their babes. What is this saying here? They have everything they want in this life. They are living, as it, if I may take the phrase, their best life now. And they are satisfied that not only are they filling this life, but they have something to leave to their children and their grandchildren. But that is the end of their hope. But then David turns and he says, but the end of the righteous is far better. David has confidence that even though he should meet with death, there is something better for him after death, namely the resurrection, when he shall um, behold thy face in righteousness when I shall be satisfied, when I awake in thy likeness. David is not simply talking here about um, after death, that intermediate estate. He's talking about the resurrection, when he will be glorified, remade in the likeness of God. And that is his hope. And so these two psalms are tied together based on that hope of the resurrection. Thus ends the reading then of 16 and 17 of the book of Psalms.